You know, I was uh, looking as I've been prepping last week and this week um, for these lessons. This, gosh, this issue of life and looking at the Ten Commandments and the law. And the question is, why? Why, God? Why did you offer this stuff? Why did you tell the Israelites that this would be like the staple of their culture and who they were as people? And I conclude, life. It brings life to the community, to the individual. And so uh, this ties in perfectly. Uh, if you got in here and you didn't get sermon notes and you'd like those, um, they're in the bag. Maybe Stephanie would run them to you. You're the closest. What can I say, Stephanie? Um, so uh, slip up your hand and she'd be happy to... Oh, don't disappoint her. So, oh, there we go. All right, good. Um, we're going to jump right into this. And hopefully you've been uh, caught up. And I just want to give you a very fast refresh. And just remember that we're talking about uh, the thing called Christianity. What is this thing about Christianity? What's it all about? Is there things we've gotten wrong? Are there assumptions that we've made? Did we get stuck somewhere in our Christianity and not investigate more of what God might have for us? That's really what we're about. The first week I said, you know, hey, there's some flaws that actually make our faith weak. We're going to discuss those flaws. Last week we said, how did it all begin? And we talked with the nation of Israel and how the nation of Israel was birthed and this thing began. And we got to the point where we, I told you that the people decided they wanted a king so they could be like all the other nations. That's where we pick it up this week. So I, I, what I need to do is I need you to imagine for a moment what it would have been like what would have happened and what would never have happened, who we would never have met if the nation of Israel had decided to not go to Samuel and they had decided not to kind of go after this crazy idea of being like all the other nations and to have a king. There would have been no King Saul, no King David, no King Solomon. Solomon's parents would have never have met. And not only would there have not been a, a David, there would be no Psalms of David. There would be no Ecclesiastes, no Proverbs, no Song of Solomon, right? None of that. There would be no record of the activities of the kings. And there would be no documents declaring what was prophesied to the prophets. And then they prophesied to the kings. Why? Because there would have been no kings. None of that would have existed. The storyline would have been different. It would have been a whole lot different. But here's the real kicker. If there had been no king, there would be no temple, no need for a temple. But like we said last week, all the cool kids had kings, so all the cool kids had temples too. Having a temple was another way to desire to be like every other nation. And so Israel got himself one of those as well. And just like they had to endure all the problems that would come with a king, they had to endure all the complications that would come with a permanent temple. Israel didn't need a king, and Israel did not need a temple. Both of these were attempts to be like all the other nations. Let me explain. Here's how I want to do it. I want to do it in three parks. Not parks, parts. So three different parks. I don't know. So uh, I want to do it in three parts. They're distinct, but you'll see how they kind of tie and pull this story. We're calling it Temple Talk this morning. So let's take a look at it. Part one, after taking over from like this disaster that was King Saul, if you don't know that story, read the story. It started off, yeah, and then before you know it, it's like, 
whoa, what's going on, Saul? Um, Before he knows it, he's trying to kill the would-be second king. And so quite a story. So after taking over King David, he actually, in terms of kingdoms, was very successful. He built up, he fortified, he settled the kingdom, and there was this time of peace in the kingdom. Now, during this lull, David noticed something. He's like, hey, we've all moved into houses of stone and houses of cedar, but God is still living out there in a tent like a Boy Scout, right? Or like a shepherd out in a tent. So David made an appointment with the, uh, the prophet of the day. His name was Nathan. And here's what he said. Take a look in your sermon notes. 2 Samuel 7. Look at this. Here I am comfortable in a luxurious house of cedar. And it was. If you want to take a look in there and see what David's house was like, pretty impressive. And the chest of the Lord, remember the chest where, where, the, uh, where the tablets were, sits in a plain tent. Now, Nathan heard this. He smiled and he suggested that David do something about it. And he goes so far to say that God will be pleased in anything you do. Here's what he says. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. Turns out Nathan was wrong. He spoke out of turn. What happened next is often overlooked. Let's take a look at it, though. On the evening after this do-whatever-you-want type of speech that Nathan gave, God spoke to Nathan, and he explicitly tells him, go back to David and tell him something different. Take a look. Have I not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day? I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Here's my favorite part. Wherever I have moved with all of the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you, built, why have you not built me a house of cedar? It seemed like God was fine living in a tent. He seemed to prefer it. Besides, he wasn't home all that much anyway. But there's something else at play here, something we might miss. Like, unlike David's very nice house of stone and cedar, God's tent was temporary. It was constructed of linen curtains. You might have those in your house, but also goat hair curtains. You probably don't have those in your house. And wood. It was in constant need of repair. There was actually people that were assigned as their full-time job to just repair the tabernacle and keep it in working order. But this portable and temporary nature of the tabernacle, it pointed to something and reminded them of something, that the nation of Israel, along with the tabernacle, was, like we said last week, a means to an end, a global end. God had a purpose to reveal himself to all nations to, remember the promise to Abraham, to bless all nations. And he would do it through Israel and through the tabernacle. To put words in God's mouth, which is a dangerous thing to do, I know. It's as if God was saying, look, I'm fine with my temporary digs. They're fine, right? The entire system is temporary anyway. You don't need to go build me something elaborate. I won't be there that long anyway. So from there, David, the the conversation actually takes a hard right turn. When God talking to David, he actually goes a different direction. and, And he says this, paraphrasing, enough about building me a new house. Let's talk about your family, David. You want to build me a house, but I want to establish your house. 
I want to establish your name. I want to do something through your lineage that will have, and these are the words he says, it will have forever written on it. Take a look at the, uh, of this. Um, just like Abraham, God is telling David, I will make your name great. And I'm guessing like Abraham, you've probably heard of David as well, right? So there it is, promise kept. But like often happens, God will turn us over to our own desires, right? We, God says, no, you don't want that. No, you don't want that. All right, that's what you want. You got to deal with what comes with it. And he does this again. And after a warning, he releases them to build a temple. In a last-ditch effort, I think, God tells David, look, you got too much blood on your hands to build a temple, so you know, let's just move on. And David doesn't argue. He agrees. But then he decides, I'm going to do everything in preparation, and I'll have my son build the temple here. And that's exactly what happens. We find David raises the money. He draws up the plans. He hires the stone cutters. He does everything short of cutting the ribbon and sticking the shovel in the ground to get it going. David was so determined to do this, even after the warning of God to be like all the other nations and to build the grandest temple. And David says, a temple to beat all temples. And so according to this plan, when King Solomon, Solomon took reign, this construction project began. Now, it took us a little while to build this church, a couple years or so. It seemed like a long time. It took 20 years to complete the temple. At the end of the 20 years, Solomon invites God to move into this new home, sort of. And God agrees, sort of. But before he moves in, God has this talk with Solomon. Now, this talk should have caused Solomon to kind of sit up straight and take notice. Turns out it didn't, but it should have. He gave him the keys to the car speech. Did you, did you ever receive the keys to the car speech? Or maybe you've had kids you've given it to. Here's why it went in my house. I am so happy that I am able to offer you use of the family automobiles, the fine lot of vehicles, the 2004 van you can use, the 2011 Jetta. I am so glad I can offer you this. But understand this. If you abuse the freedom, I will take it away and fast. Do you ever have that, that, that talk? God's version of Solomon is found in 1 Kings. Take a look at your notes. It goes like this. It's a big passage, so let me paraphrase. Solomon, I really appreciate all that's gone into creating this fabulous piece of architect. I accept your gift. I will move in immediately. But Solomon, if I catch you or my people misbehaving out there because you think I'm tucked away safely in here, I will tear this place apart. This, plate, this piece of real estate will always reflect my power and my glory, but I can accomplish that with or without a building on it. In its current form, it reflects my presence, but if you abandon me to worship other gods, this piece of land will stand vacant as a testimony to my absence. All this before he's even moved in. You think I'm making it up? Take a look at Kings chapter 9, this excerpt. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who passed will, or passed will be appalled and will scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to his temple? Well, God moves in, but he is not committed to moving in under just any conditions. Why? This is really important 
Because the temple is linked to something. We talked about it last week. It's linked to this conditional, I will do as long as you do type of covenant that he made with the nation of Israel. Do you remember last week the nation, the covenant he made at Mount Sinai? Listen to last week's teaching if you missed that or if you need a refresher on that. And God actually says, look, I'll see to the, the demolition of my own house if I find that you have abandoned me to worship other gods. He's basically saying, what is the point of having any of this if you're going to go worship other gods? Remember the covenant. I will be your God, and I will provide for you, but you cannot worship other gods. God's saying, look, the temple is nice to have. It wasn't necessary. It wasn't his idea to begin with. He tried to even talk them off it. The temple was more beautiful than it was important. And listen, if Solomon thought that this new building, which he thought was a permanent structure, was going to outshine the covenant God made with his people, you do and I will do, then Solomon was wrong. And we're going to find that out later. Why? Because remember, the overarching idea is God looked at the nation of Israel, the, temp, the, the tabernacle, and now the temple as a means to a divine and global end. Part two. Now, you may know this already, but Solomon's temple actually looked a lot like pagan temples of the day. If you want to be like all the other nations, then it would make sense that some design features are going to find their way into this temple as well. And that's exactly what we see happen. We see that the temple, the Jewish temple, actually shared in common these type of things. Porches, chambers, ports, living areas, and an altar used for animal sacrifice. Pagan temples of the, that era, they all had these things as well. Even the layout of the temple looked very similar to some ancient pagan temples. Now, every single one of these temples, they would have a certain room that was actually reserved for the image or the statue or the idol of that God. That's where they would put that God, that image or that idol to, to either be brought out for festivals or go into worship depending on the ancient religion. It was a God vault. This is what set apart the temple. The temple had a God vault as well. We know it as the Holy of Holies. But inside that God vault, no image, no idol. In fact, for many, many centuries, it was just an empty room. And that is what that set this apart. In fact, it wasn't that the Jewish temple uh, was something different because of, of something it lacked. It, it was actually, it was something different because of something they, they removed or didn't, never had to begin with this image. Do you remember the commandment we talked about last week? You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth or beneath or in the water. That is not what we're going to be about, God says. The temple was like this. It was a beautiful picture frame with no picture in the middle. That was the distinguishing different characteristic of Judaism. Because, remember, it was forbidden to have an image. It was one of the top ten that we talked about in the Ten Commandments. Listen, for you and I, this notion of not having an image or idol to worship, right, fine. We're fine with it. It doesn't throw us sideways at all. 
You don't take your Bible home and worship your Bible. You don't put it up on a pedestal like that, right? You probably don't go home and, you know, create an image of you think, oh, I think God looks like this and put it on it and bow to that and pray to that. You, you don't do that. But you've got to understand in ancient times, the very opposite was true. A religion without an image seemed very, very absurd. In fact, even for these people that God had built so much into, they spent 430 years as slaves in Egypt in probably the most pagan land with the greatest number of pagan gods of the time. And so even them were influenced by this idea. When a Roman general Pompey entered Jerusalem in 63 B.C., uh, he, he conducted a, a self-tour of the city and temple. A self-tour meaning he went wherever he wanted to go. And so he went into the temple, pushed past the priest, right, and went to where only the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies that we just talked about. And to his shock, do you know what he saw in their God chamber? No image, no idol. Golden table, candlestick, some talents of gold there, all of which he left, but no image. How absurd it must have seemed to him. Perhaps he was saying these these crazy Jews, they built this elaborate physical structure like nothing else I'd ever seen, and it has no physical representation of their God whatsoever. Who ever heard of a God without an image? Exactly. Who would hear of this God who could not be confined or defined by an image sitting in a space? Everyone. Everyone. How? Through the nation of Israel. You might say, no, 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 Tom, wait a second. No, through Jesus, right? Yes, but you're getting ahead of the story. We'll get there. Back to Solomon. While this temple may have not been God's original idea, as God often does, he gave it purpose and meaning. In fact, it became understood and declared that the Jewish people needed to not cart out a God on festival days. Nobody brought the wheelbarrow to get the big image and bring it out of the temple to now be worshipped in the congregation or in the courtyard or wherever. They didn't need to uh, protect or lock it up at night so that nobody would steal the image or nobody would chip off a piece and take it home for good luck so they own it. They didn't really need bodyguards for the God and for the idol here. They really didn't need to be protected from any elements as well. Why? God's uh, Israel's God was spirit, a holy spirit. And this is totally, totally different. God's, Israel's God wasn't put in a temple. God's inhabited the temple. And that's important for us to know because nothing has changed. God wants to inhabit us, his spirit, as well. Now, just as he inhabited the temple all those years, the tabernacle, he's now inhabiting the temple that's what's going on. Take a look at it, 1 Kings 8. The priest then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. Now, uh, we've got to understand the presence of the Ark does not equate to the presence of God. The, the Ark that stored the, the, uh, the tablets, the Ten Commandments, the Law, it wasn't created as an art of, object of worship. We get no reference in the Old Testament of them ever worshiping that. What happened next gives the temple its significance. Take a look. When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. 
And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For, get this, the glory of the Lord filled his presence or his temple. It was God in his own terms who came and filled the temple. And it was the distinguishing characteristic of this temple versus any other. This, this God, this godless, non-containing image here, that would be the difference. Why? Why is that so important? Like, because what we're going to find and what we're building to here is that the temple now God will use to serve context. The temple God is going to use uh, for a series of events that would reshape the world dramatically, but God is signifying, setting the stage that he is still carrying out the promise that he gave to, to Abraham to bless all the world through the nation of Israel. But he's going to do it in an image-free, idol-free type of way. He's going to do it not because he is confined or defined by space or image. He is going to be an all-moving, everywhere, all-at-one-time God. This made no sense to God in those days. And even the Jews were still wrapping their head around what this meant for them. It pointed to God's global purpose for the nation. Why does that matter? Because you and I are now part of that global purpose. Part three, when Solomon was anointed king, there's peace in the land, right? David brought peace. Solomon became king under peace, right? And uh, some refer to this as the golden age of Israel. But like peace often does sometimes, it can make us a bit laxed. We cannot depend on the things we once depended on. And what we find is that in a time where we thought maybe a time of peace, that Israel would be a blessing to others, well, it turned out it didn't seem it was the right time. It certainly wasn't time for, for Solomon because he got a bit distracted. Do you remember this story? He got distracted by women, wives, a lot of wives, a lot of foreign wives that he took on and their foreign gods as well. The temple talk, here's the keys to the temple, it didn't stick. Here's something we often overlook. Along with building this temple to God, Solomon actually built temples to all of the gods of his foreign wives. Why? Well, to keep his foreign wives happy, of course. How many miniature temples, you might ask? Ready for this? 700. 700. Say that number with me. 700. Wow. Check it out. Listen to what it says in Scripture. 1 Kings 11. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And his wives led him astray. He built altars, he built shrines, he built houses of worship for each god, for each of these gods that needed to be worshipped by his foreign wives. How many? Remember? Say it with me again. 700. Now, one of these wives, can you believe it, was actually the daughter of Pharaoh, where God had delivered them from that land. Even worse, we later learned that Solomon actually started to worship those gods right along with his wife. Not in exclusion of Israel's God, but it's even worse. In addition to worshiping, while he's worshiping Israel's God, he is now turning and worshiping these foreign gods and these pagan gods. And really, we say these made-up gods as well. And this seems like confusing to us. How could Solomon do this? 
How could Solomon receive this speech from God? How could Solomon actually be spoken into God? How could Solomon have received the gift of wisdom that he received and then in the end turn around and worship these foreign gods? How can this happen? Well, it makes perfect good sense to Solomon. Once God was built a temple, once it seemed like it was like any of the other pagan gods, it was very easy for him to take the next step of reducing God. That's your proximity. That's where you go, God. We'll call you out when we need you. We'll call upon you when you need you. But in the meantime, that's your house. You hang out there. Forgotten was that God is not a regional God. He's not defined and confined by space. That he is an everywhere, all at once type of God. He is a mobile God who moves all over as, as remembered that he went to Egypt to rescue his people. But gone was that tent. Gone was that reminder. Gone was the need, especially in time of peace, to call on God to fight for us or to do for us. Side note before we finish. Before we heap too much on Solomon, and I think he deserves it, maybe we should evaluate ourselves as well on how easy it is for us to make a commitment to God, to follow God, to call on God, and then sometimes turn and in some way bow to some other God. Now, we don't have images sitting around, I don't think. We don't have the tangible things. It's more like we're bowing to the God of success, bowing to the God of Facebook likes, bowing to the God of finances, or bowing to the God of, of worry, or bowing to and on and on and on. Whereas Matthew writes in his Gospels, seek first the kingdom of God, and all those things that are needs and provisions will be added to you. And is that not the message God gave his nation of Israel from the very beginning? No other gods before me. Don't bow to any, any image and created image. Look to me and I will be your provision. And I will do something great for the world through you. I think it's easy for us sometimes to fall into that camp as well. And I'll leave that for you to wrestle with that and go before God. Confess where you need. Call on God where you need. Deny where you need or pick up where you need. I'll leave that to you in your own devotion. Well, under Solomon, you might see they were in no position to bless other nations. Not when Solomon was bowing a knee to so many foreign gods here. And whereas Solomon might have forgot or maybe he just abandoned the covenant God had just made with him, the temple talk, if you remember, God did not forget what he said to Solomon. His agreement with Solomon mirrored this conditional agreement. Take a look at it again. What did God say? The temple will be a heap of rubble. All who pass will be appalled and will scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to its temple? True to his word, in 587 B.C., after a bloody siege, Nebuchadnezzar broke through a breach in the wall of Jerusalem. He killed thousands. He took thousands as slaves back with him to his land. And, this, and get this, he tore Solomon's temple down to the foundation. Tore it down. But, unfor but fortunately, God wasn't home that afternoon. 
fact, he had moved out long before. And we'll pick that up next week from where we go. Let's pray, and I'm going to invite you to, to go before God and find yourself in this story. Let's pray. Father, like we've mentioned already, where would we be here in this story? Lord, is there times where we could, we could recount what you have done for us, how you've provided, how you've called us out, you've been our God? Is there times where you've even warned us, like, hey, stay focused on me. If you don't, this is what comes with, this is what comes with it. If I turn you over to your desires. Lord, I think we have mixed and matched a lot of times our desire to worship you and to worship something else, to worship self-image or to worship these tangible things we can hold in the area of finances or promotion or, or these type of things. Lord, there's some of these other gods we need to wipe away entirely. They need to be out of our life. There's some of these that we need to reprioritize to put in its proper place, not in the place it's elevated above you. Father, could we, like Matthew, write Jesus' words, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the presence of God. Seek first to allow God to be manifest within us, to inhabit us as he inhabited the temple, to lead us, to call us, to speak into us, to challenge us. Seek that first and trust then that you are a God of provision that will give and provide and you will set straight the other things. Now, Father, when we put those things first, some of which need to not even be in the lot, there is trouble. There was trouble in the kingdom of, with Israel and there's trouble in our lives. If that's you this morning and there's just something you need to surrender before God, we've invited you already in this service, but I'm inviting you once again to do that. Just right now, you can say in a quick prayer to God, Lord, I surrender this. You name it, you know what it is. Lord, I confess this. You know what it is. Just give it to God. Walk out of here feeling a weight off you, feeling directed by God. And God has blessing he wants to offer you. And just the same way as we read in this story, God wants to use us to bless others. But first, we've got to get straight with God. So Lord, help us in that. We pray in your son's name. Amen.